When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, John Lyons. John is a professor of history at Joliet Junior College in Illinois, where he teaches British and American history. And John's latest book is Joy and Fear, The Beatles, Chicago, and the 1960s, and is published by Pure Muted Press. John, thank you for joining me today. Well, hello, Bradley. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Please share with us what your book is about. Well, I, uh, it came really out of the, uh, the last book I wrote. I finished a book up in uh, 2013, and uh, that was called uh, America in the uh, British Imagination. And as it says in the tin, it was basically about how the British viewed America since uh, World War II up to the present. And I was always thinking about doing a sort of reverse, a mirror image of that book, which was going to be about how Americans uh, viewed Britain. But uh, if you remember back in uh, 2013, when I was finishing up that book, it was just that time where they were talking about the 50th anniversary of the Beatles coming to America. And so that was so much on in the sort of media and sort of, you know, in my uh, thoughts that I thought, well, it'd be a good idea to actually, instead of writing a book about America viewing the British, uh, what I would do is do a book on uh, how Americans viewed the Beatles. And so that was then what I was going to write the book on. And I, I realized pretty immediately that it had to be based on uh, one particular place. America is just too big to do uh, a, a book, which is America's view of the Beatles. So I wanted to pick a place where I could do like a community study of uh, the reaction to the Beatles. And I picked Chicago because uh, I live here. And uh, also because uh, it was the second largest city in America in the 60s. And it had a large African-American population, student population, suburban population. And these are all people that I wanted to uh, study. And uh, also I thought people would be interested in Chicago because it was, uh, in the 60s you had Mayor Daley, a major national figure, was from there. You had some of the urban riots took place in uh, Chicago. You had the Democratic National Convention took place in Chicago. Many of the um, uh, black nationalist groups came from Chicago. Uh, Students for Democratic Society were based there. So I thought it was a, a, an interesting place to the general reader for me to uh, study about how Chicagoans responded to the Beatles. And there was a significant response because your book opens up with a very interesting sentence saying on Monday morning, February 10th, 1964, war broke out in Chicago. And that was the day after they had performed on the Ed Sullivan show. So I wanted to kind of, before we dive into their impact on Chicago, I want to explore the background and history to provide context to some things we'll discuss later, because as majorly popular as the Beatles are and influential as they are, you know, there are still some people out there who don't know a lot about them. So before we dive into their influence on Chicago's social and cultural politics, can you briefly share with us what life was like for a young Beatle in Liverpool? 
Yeah, the the first chapter of the book was really sort of kept the, set in the context about uh, the origins of the Beatles. Again, this was appealing to sort of a, a general audience that may not know too much about them, but also I wanted it to appeal to people that did know a lot about the Beatles, but wanted to uh, address the issue about how they became so popular in the UK. So in terms of the Beatles, as we all know, they came from uh, Liverpool, working class uh, generally, I know people say Lenin wasn't, but if you go to his house, he wasn't exactly living in uh, wealth and luxury. And uh, they uh, came of age when Britain was becoming more affluent and you would say more free. National service was ending. And uh, I think they reflected some of this. They were able to uh, afford uh, to buy instruments. Uh, Their audience was able to afford to go and see them and buy their records. So I think they were lucky they were appearing at a time when uh, Britain was becoming more affluent, and they certainly enjoyed that. But in terms of uh, why they became popular in the UK, and they released their first single in October 62, so pretty much 60 years ago. And uh, they uh, their, their fame sort of like grew over the next few months. They then had uh, Please Please Me was pretty much their number one record in early 63. But by the end of 63, they were appearing at the London Palladium, which was the the, the main sort of uh, music venue in the UK. And also they were appearing in front of the Royal Family. So it gives an idea of uh, their uh, swift ascent in the uh, British entertainment industry. So I wanted to figure out why that was. And I, I pretty much uh, came up with, which is what uh, part of the book is about, is uh, I think what the Beatles did is they were able to package and sell joy, pure joy. And you can see that, I mean, in so many ways, you can see it in their name. You know, if you think about the name, we have so many groups now that we're so used to that we don't really flinch when we see somebody, you know, that's got some weird name. But the Beatles, when that uh, name was first in the the public uh, imagination in the early 60s, the first thing people did was they smiled. Because it's it's a it's a very sort of funny name to and of course it, it garnered headlines then for the next ten years you know the Beatles infestation the bugs you know all this sort of stuff so just a name was just very sort of like funny joyful brings a smile to the face and then when you think about their music their music is very uplifting is very joyful uh, it rises to a crescendo. Uh, their iconic single, I think, really in England anyway, in the UK, was uh, She Loves You. And again, if you listen to that, I mean, who would write a song that's got yeah, yeah, yeah in the title? And again, how many headlines, even today, if you see a headline about the Beatles, there's a good chance it's going to include the words yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, you think about their personalities, pretty obviously, they're also very joyful, they're very fun, uh, outgoing, confident, extremely funny. I mean, they were really like comedians. If they hadn't uh, gone into the music industry, they probably could have uh, gone into uh, comedy. And then, of course, uh, their look. And, you know, today, again, we think about long hair on boys as uh, being uh, just sort of like normal. But in the early 60s, it was uh, very, very unusual. And I think, again, it's very joyful. It's it's something that, again, is kind of like funny, you know, the, the way they shook their heads, you know. It was very, very sort of uh, joyful for the, uh, the period. So in other words, what I think they did is why they became so popular is because they were able to package that joy and then they sold it to an audience in... Uh, 
the UK. And then probably what I wanted to do with that was then see how and why that would then translate to uh, America. And I really like that you focus on that element of joy, because if we think about the historical context of the Beatles at that time, the post-war in the UK was not the economic or cultural boom that was in the United States. It was, you know, kind of a little bit darker, that hint of the sense that the better days were already past. You know, there wasn't a bright outlook for the future in the UK. So that's very important that this focus on, on, on joy that you have in your book. Yeah, I think that's true to a degree. You know, obviously, when people look at uh, Britain, they'd say, you know, the decline of empire, uh, the decline of Britain uh, economically uh, compared to the U.S., obviously, they'd gone into massive decline while the U.S. had gone into uh, an ascendancy. But I think uh, the way I kind of looked at it was that uh, they they were actually coming out of uh, the worst period, which was World War II, austerity, rationing, you know, all that ended by the, the mid-50s, which is just when the Beatles were hitting their teenage years. So I think really they were actually products of uh, optimism. The Beatles were very optimistic people. They, they saw the world around them getting better. And again, it's it's probably because a lot of working class people, they really didn't have much of a connection with uh, empire or even worried about, uh, you know, the the uh, international standing of the UK. I think what they were worried about was what they saw around them. And what they saw around them was the world was getting better for them. And I think there is that sense of uh, optimism in uh, Britain. And uh, I think that goes through the 60s as well. So I don't think it's till the 1970s where you start to see a much more pessimistic view of uh, you know the, the British society by young people. And we certainly think of joy when we look back on the Beatles as part of the self-mythologizing that they had. You know, you know, as we continue with their career, all you need is love. But when we think about at that time when they're breaking out, Beatlemania at, at 64 just seemed like an overnight phenomenon. And with hindsight, it is that way. But many record labels and stations seem reluctant to take a chance on the Beatles. Why was that so? And what were the labels and stations in Chicago doing? Yeah, in terms of uh, the, the Beatles came out on uh, Parlophone, which was part of uh, EMI, the major record label in the UK. And they had a parent company in uh, the US, which was Capital. So therefore, when a record came out on EMI, they would then pass it to Capital, send it to Capital, and then Capital would decide if it should be released or not. So when they got Love Me Do in October 62, they passed on it. They, they didn't think it was uh, suitable for the American market. And I think the thing about this again is, but we, we now all again, of course, laugh at these people. You know, they, they were fools that they couldn't see that the Beatles were so good. But I think the, the issue here is that there wasn't many British acts that had a sustained career in America. You know, they might have had the one hit song, but there was nobody who had a sustained career. And of course, just before the Beatles was that other British phenomena, the one that everybody also thought was going to break America, Cliff Richard. And of course, he got nowhere. And so that's what was in these record executives' minds, that this is another English group. They're not going to have a career over here. Cliff Richard was a disaster. 
we parcel it. And then they passed on the second single as well, which was Please Please Me. But Please Please Me was, I think it definitely is an upgrade on Love Me Do, certainly commercially. And it was already selling very well in the UK. And so therefore, George Martin, the Beatles producer, Brian Epstein, their manager, they knew that that was a record that could break in America. It was breaking all over Europe and it could break in America. And so therefore, they offered it again to Capsule. Capsule said no. And so therefore, they then started to ship it around to other record labels to see if they would release it in America. And lo and behold, they finally got uh, a record uh, label to release it. And that was a Chicago-based record label. And that was VJ. And they ended up uh, releasing a small record label. You know, actually, for, for uh, in relation to African-American record labels, it was probably the biggest African-American record label before Motown. So in that respect, it was big, but obviously nowhere near as big as uh, Capital. So they released that single in February uh, 63. So that's a year before Ed Sullivan. You know, so that gives you an idea. And then uh, VJ released another single, which was uh, From Me To You, and uh, neither of them got anywhere. They didn't have money to publicise it anyway. They, you know, it wasn't uh, as if they were a big company. And neither of them singles got anywhere. They had problems about, uh, play, paying royalties the company was already in a little bit of trouble so uh, the next singles after that were not released by VJ, they went to other record labels like Swan uh, and then eventually when the Beatles did break the reason they really broke in America is because they were getting so much media coverage in the UK you know, by the end of the year they'd all, like I said, they'd met the royal family and there was Beatlemania you know, the massive uh, crowds that were greeting them and the screaming. And and that was uh, being uh, portrayed now on uh, TV in the UK and also in the uh, national newspapers and magazines. And so some Americans started to pick up on that. That this this uh, uh, the way they picked up on it, actually, the, the American media, is they saw it as being just so odd that these British that were so staid, you know, the stiff upper lip, and here they are going nuts over these people wearing wigs, which is, you know, how it was portrayed, really. They couldn't believe that the Beatles had long hair. Long hair. So, uh, so anyway, so they started to pick it up, really, at the end of the 1963. And then, of course, you had the Kennedy assassination, which kind of derailed, I think, the, um, the, the popularity of the Beatles in America. But then again, uh, by Christmas, then uh, the uh, Capitol did then release I Want to Hold Your Hand. It then started to sell in January 64, and uh, that's really then what led to uh, them breaking America. And before that, in, in November 63, Brian Epstein had gone to New York and he'd brokered the deal with Ed Sullivan to then appear on the Ed Sullivan Show on uh, the 9th of uh, February 1964. You touched upon this a little bit in your answer, but I want to explore it a little bit more. You write that one of the factors that influenced the Beatles' success in America and Beatlemania was specifically their Britishness. Can you talk more about that and what about it specifically? Yeah, in some ways, it's a bit of a dichotomy here because in some ways there was some people in Chicago and America who uh, didn't like the fact that the Beatles were from the UK. There was still a sort of uh, leftover of sort of like anti-British feeling that has been in America, obviously very much after the revolution, the war of 1812, and then, uh, you know, right up until World War One, really. But uh, it then started to 
subside. And I think in terms of the Beatles, when they came to uh, America, there was a appreciation of uh, British culture, probably more so than there had been for you know a long, long time. And I'm thinking about you know before the Beatles even set foot in America, there was already a mention of quote a British invasion. That, that phrase was already being used in the newspapers in America, but it wasn't related to the Beatles. It was related to the films, the British films that were coming to America, Lawrence of Arabia, Tom Jones. These were, these were huge hits before the, the Beatles came. Broadway, you know, that was basically becoming dominated by British actors and uh, uh, plays. And, of course, uh, James Bond. That was uh, on the way as well at the same time. And uh, even Mary Quant, you know, the the designer who, uh, one of the designers anyway, that certainly uh, uh, designed the miniskirt, uh, she was already in America and her clothes already coming into British stores. So I think they're already sort of making inroads, the British uh, culture in uh, America, in movies, in theatre, in, uh, you know, other facets of uh, culture, but not music. It was the Beatles that really broke the uh, the music. But anyway, I think the importance of that is that when the Beatles then landed in America, uh, they had an advantage over uh, people from uh, groups from other parts of the world in the fact is they spoke English, and that's uh, a great uh, you know advantage they had because uh, Johnny Halliday, uh, a very big uh, French star, you know, famous all over the uh, the francophone world. Uh, basically never made it outside uh, the francophone world because uh, he just couldn't communicate in the same way as the Beatles could with Australia, New Zealand, Canada and the US. So I think the fact they spoke English was a big part. Uh, You can't imagine, again, their humour coming across in America if they didn't speak a common language. You know, again, if you can imagine a group that was speaking in Spanish trying to be that sort of like very quick humour, it just wouldn't have worked really. And then, of course, the other thing is that... uh, the, uh, the Britishness meant that uh, they'd become so in tuned with America. They knew America so much because of its influence on uh, Britain. And if you think about the Beatles' music, it was really American. It, the, all the early Beatles' music was influenced by America. It was, you know, rock and roll music. It was R&B music and it was country music. They were the three elements in the Beatles' music. So I think that was important because then when it came to America, it sounded familiar. You know, Beatles' music was different enough to make them different, you know, that they could stood out. But it was familiar enough uh, because of the the British, you know, contact of America that Americans could straight away, you know, relate to the music. So I think the fact they were from Britain, I think, was a real help to uh, the Beatles breaking in America. In the earliest chapters of your book, you discuss the American influence on the Beatles and how they reflected that. And a lot of those American musical traditions came from Black musical traditions. And I want to explore that. But before we do, you mentioned VJ earlier, which is one of the first African-American-owned record labels in the country. And there's a great quote in your book that I want to read because it gives some considerable context to the success of the Beatles in America. And you write... If four black men had exited the plane from London on the afternoon of February 7, 1964, the reception they would have received from the American media and public would have been altogether different. Black music may have found an appreciative white audience, but not black people. And it's an incredible quote by itself. And when you consider also just how racially segregated Chicago has historically been and still is, 
it makes me wonder how did the black community feel about Beatlemania at its height? Yeah. Okay. I think the the point about that quote was really saying that, uh, I was trying to say that the British anger was a big influence on why they hit America and why they were become popular here. But I also think uh, the fact that they were white was a big help as well. You know, you, you just, if you think about America in the, in that sort of period, you had the civil rights movement. There was a lot of uh, racial antagonism and a lot of uh, white people, and you can see this in all the opinion polls, uh, they didn't want their kids to go to school with black people. And they didn't want to live next door to a black person. And also, they certainly did not want their daughters, their teenage daughters, screaming at uh, black men. And so that was the point I was trying to make, really, is that because of this racial separation, antagonism in America, the fact that the Beatles were white, I think, was a big, big help in uh, the early 60s. And in terms of the uh, the black population in Chicago and, and the rest of America, the, the reaction was very similar to what it would have been in, a, in uh, the white community. And uh, I interviewed, I, I may purposely wanted to interview a lot of black people to see how they responded uh, to the Beatles. And uh, I interviewed this uh, girl who was at the time, she was 12 years old when the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. And what she spoke about was very, very similar to what would have happened to uh, a white teenage girl in a white household. You know, they were very, very similar. And that is the teenage girl loved the Beatles. They related to them straight away. The the mother was kind of like, well, we had our moments in the 50s with Elvis or with whoever else. And so they could kind of understand it, if not really like the Beatles. The, uh, The brother thought it was just a girl thing and laughed at them, you know, thought it was silly. And then, of course, the dad straight away said they need to get their hair cut. So that was a common reaction in uh, throughout America. And she spoke about that. Uh, her name was Cynthia Dagnall. She spoke about that in uh, her household, the same reaction. But there is a slight difference, and that is that when she went to school that week after the Ed Sullivan show, that there was a lot of uh, her classmates, don't forget most schools were segregated in Chicago. And so therefore most of her fellow uh, students would have been black. And a lot of them liked the Beatles because they could relate to the music. Again, the the music was rhythm and blues music, let's be honest. And but uh, some of them said uh, that uh, that's not our kind of music, that that's white music and we should be liking Motown. So I do think that there is a a bit of a split in the black community, but uh, a lot of blacks really did uh, like the Beatles. And the other place I found out about this was uh, I was lucky in Chicago to have uh, the Chicago Defender, the leading African-American newspaper. And uh, I looked through that and there was a lot of articles about uh, the Beatles And they gave me a real insight into those letters, you know, from mothers and from kids and that writing about them. There was also a music column in there. So I could have a good idea. And one of the things that I I found really amusing was that when A Hard Day's Night came out in the summer of 64, the Chicago Defender ran a contest and the winners of the contest went to see a preview of uh, A Hard Day's Night. And so uh, when the uh, contest uh, winners were announced they uh, had pictures of the uh, the kids going to see a hard day's night and it's in a black uh, uh, neighborhood in chicago a theater that would normally be showing films for a black audience and there's hundreds of these kids outside going in to see a hard day's night 
So, you know, in other words, I think that the Beatles were popular in the, the black community, but also there was a, a, certainly amongst some this kind of thought that really it's not our music, that uh, it's Motown as our music. That was what was becoming popular, not uh, the Beatles. And the Beatles often publicly expressed their disdain for racism. How was that reflected in black journalism and radio? Yeah, in terms of uh, the Beatles were very good about uh, talking about uh, racial issues. And of course, uh, it really came to the fore when they came to uh, America in uh, 1964 when they toured and uh, they they refused to play in uh, in front of segregated audiences. And uh, this was certainly something that you did, uh, the people, the African-Americans that I spoke to, they did note this, that they were very impressed about this white group would come out and uh, say things like that. And also in the Chicago Reader, you also do see an appreciation for uh, the Beatles uh, publicly coming out saying they won't play in front of segregated audiences. But in terms of the Beatles and the uh, their uh, their like of uh, black music, you know, they they loved uh, obviously Chuck Berry and uh, Bo Diddley, both of them who recorded at uh, Chess Records in Chicago, but also they loved people like The Impressions, Major Lance, Sam Cooke, you know, that Chicago soul sound, and uh, you can see that reflected in their music as well. It wasn't, you know, we all know that they like Motown music without a doubt, but they also love Chicago soul music. And so that is something that is reflected in their uh, music as well. And then the other thing I just wanted to say about uh, the the African-American community is they had uh, their own radio stations that played African-American music. And when um, the uh, first Beatles uh, single, Please Please Me, came out on VJ, uh, as you said, it was a black-owned record label, they passed it to black-owned radio stations or radio stations that play black music. So a lot of black people heard the Beatles in 1963 on these radio stations before white people would have heard them. And I remember I, I talked to some people who said that they literally remember hearing them songs in 1963 and they thought they were black. They thought the groups were black. And for the Beatles, that would have been the highest compliment they could have been played because uh, they uh, they wanted to sound authentically like uh, African American musicians. So stations so so record labels like VJ and stations like WVON, they weren't necessarily mainstream entertainment media in Chicago at that time. And unfortunately, the mainstream stations were not fans of the Beatles at all. And you write that a month before their appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, the Chicago Tribune issued a Beatle warning. Tell us about that. Yeah, there was sort of like um, a lot of people, you know, that we've talked about so far that found the Beatles such a joyful experience, the way they're able to package joy and then basically sell it to this wider audience. But a lot of people also feared the Beatles. And one of the bastions of anti Beatledom in America, in uh, Chicago was the Chicago Tribune, you know, and that was one of the leading newspapers in uh, the nation in the 60s. It was a Republican newspaper. And uh, if you were either running for president or major office and you were a Republican, you had to appear in that newspaper. I mean, it was, it was that important. And the editor of the newspaper was called W.D. Maxwell. And he wrote uh, a number of of uh, editorials about the Beatles throughout the 60s. 
Yeah, and um, the first one he wrote was in, uh, like you say, in January 64, and that was called Beatle Menace, where he was actually warning the American audience that the Beatles were coming and he was going to keep a check on them. He was already worried about them. But the, the one that I really like was one that he wrote then after they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. So they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show on the 9th, and then a couple of days later there was an editorial in the Chicago Tribune, and the headline was Human Sheepdogs. I mean, that what a classic headline. And, uh, you know, I think that sort of gives you an idea, really, about the Tribune's and W.D. Maxwell's reaction to the uh, the Beatles. And I think that what they were worried about is that the the Beatles in many ways symbolised changes that were already taking place in America. America was already moving in a direction that uh, these uh, conservatives didn't really like. You know, I'm thinking about the civil rights movement. I'm thinking about uh, the uh, the beginnings of, of a women's movement. The feminine mystique had already been published. Uh the Women Equal Pay Act gave women the, the uh, equal pay. And then the uh, Supreme Court decision that uh, disallowed uh, prayers in public schools. All of these things were what conservatives worried about. And I think they saw the Beatles and they symbolised a lot of these concerns. You know, the long hair, for them that symbolised hedonism, a lack of responsibility. It was playing with gender norms. And of course, it also suggested homosexuality so i think that they were worried about uh, uh, the beatles people like um, wd maxwell and the the tribune but the other places that worried about the beatles was the church and of course the uh, chicago at the time had the largest catholic diocese in the country and it was amazing how much influence the catholic church had in chicago i mean they had the year of city hall but also uh, they the priests used to write columns in the local newspapers and, of course, a lot of these columns were about the Beatles. And, of course, what they were worried about is the uh, the girls in the audience, that they were uh, spending, should we say, too much time thinking about sensual pleasures and not uh, spiritual matters. And so the Catholic Church was certainly very worried about the Beatles. And then the third bastion, if you want to say, of anti-Beatledom was, uh, of course, Mayor Daly. And uh, he was worried because, of course, in the summer of 64, the Beatles were coming to Chicago. So you touched upon a lot of reasons why people were resistant to the Beatles. They, they sounded black. They performed music that was based off black music, uh, the homosexuality, the enticing young girls. And there's a great quote in your book where you say, in the years following their debut in the U.S., many Beatles fans found their joyous music an inspiring call for freedom, but others saw the music as disconcerting and the whole phenomenon as a distressing indictment of the modern world. And this is something that's very important because culture impacts politics. You mentioned Richard Daly, who was the mayor of Chicago at the time, and he viewed the uh, Beatles as a threat because they symbolized these progressive cultural values. Yeah. What was he specifically doing in his capacity as mayor? to combat Beatlemania. Yeah. Uh, it's Again, it's hard to uh, sort of like, uh, you know, overemphasize how important uh, Mayor Daly was in the 60s. He was uh, mayor of Chicago from 1955 until he died in office in uh, December 76. And a lot of people say that if he hadn't died in office, he'd still be mayor of Chicago today. 
And uh, he also had, uh, it was such a powerful position that he had in Chicago that he would have an influence in uh, Illinois, the capital of Illinois, Springfield, on the politicians there. But he also have a... Um, an influence on the politicians that went from Chicago to Dub to Washington DC. So he had a lot of influence. It wasn't just Chicago; it was well outside Chicago as well. And um, he was somebody who was called the boss in Chicago because of his power. And his papers are at uh, UIC in Chicago, University of Illinois at Chicago. And so I looked through his uh, papers. And it was quite amazing because if if you wanted to get anything done in Chicago, you wrote to Mayor Daly. And of course, in early 64, teenage girls wanted the Beatles to come to Chicago. So they wrote to Mayor Daly. That's how powerful he was. They thought that basically it was all down to Mayor Daly to decide whether the Beatles came to Chicago or not. And he certainly did play a major role in that. But also they wrote to him asking him for uh, uh, tickets to the shows when they did appear. They uh, wrote to him asking if they could meet the Beatles. And also they wanted to give the keys to the city to the Beatles, and so they wrote to uh, to Mayor Daly. Now, so that gives you an idea of how powerful he was. And when the uh, the Beatles came to Chicago, they, they eventually played in Chicago uh, on September the 5th, 1964, and they played one concert. And uh, Mayor Daly was really worried because what he was really worried about was the law and order. Chicago had seen the civil rights movement erupt, there had been boycotts by the civil rights movement of uh, segregated black schools in Chicago in 63 and early 64. So this was in his mind. And then he was also reading newspaper reports of uh, the Beatles um, concerts elsewhere in America, because the, the one in Chicago's, uh, you know, about halfway through the, the tour. And so therefore, he was really worried that everywhere they went, there seemed to be uh, trouble, and he didn't want that in Chicago. So therefore, he came up with a great plan. And the great plan was, firstly, he wouldn't allow them to stay overnight in Chicago. And that's why when they played in Chicago on September the 5th, 1964, they came in Chicago about 4.30 in the evening, and they gave a news conference, they played their concert, and then they got back to the airport and were on their plane by 11.30 at night. So seven hours is all they spent in Chicago. And then the second part of his great plan was he was going to keep it a secret where the Beatles were going to land. Because he realised that every time the Beatles arrived in a city, there'd be thousands of people greeting them at the airport. And some of this would lead to uh, unruly behaviour. So he um, decided that he wasn't going to tell anybody where the Beatles were landing or uh, what time they were going to land. But of course, the promoter in Chicago had a, a press secretary. And the press secretary's job is to you know, get press coverage. And so therefore, he decided he was going to tell the press. So he leaked the information to the radio and to the press at, that the Beatles were coming into uh, O'Hare Airport uh, at uh, 4.30. And uh, Mayor Daly went absolutely nuts. And uh, he phoned the airline and uh, the pilot and said to them, you're not coming into uh, O'Hare Airport, you're now coming into Midway. And so that's why the Beatles arrived at Midway Airport, which was a much smaller airport than the one at uh, O'Hare in 1960, uh, 
for. And he also, I mean, he also planned meticulously with the, the police department about how many police would be on duty. He had hundreds of police inside and outside the arena. Of course, what used to happen is a lot of teenagers used to try and get into the arena days before the event. They'd hide in the bathrooms and things like that. And, of course, uh, the police then would uh, go into the bathrooms the days before the concert and take the teenagers out. And So, anyways, it was, a, it was certainly a, a military operation that Mayor Daly had planned to avoid uh, any of this uh, unruly behaviour in his town. So a lot of the resistance of Beatlemania from the perspective of Cultural conservatives are rooted in racism, nativism, sexism. But one of the fascinating things I learned from your book is that while traditionalists and cultural conservatives were outraged by the Beatles phenomenon, the American left generally ignored them. And this was fascinating to me because there's no shortage of examples of culture war issues for traditional conservatives. But this interests me because when it comes to culture wars today, everyone has to take a stand now. And I wanted you to tell us about specifically why the left side of the spectrum was so apathetic towards the Beatles. Yeah, I think um, in terms of, uh, again, you've got to realize, you know, that what we know now about pop music, rock music, and about the sort of uh, the way that uh, a lot of pop stars have used pop music for their political, you know, uh, social issues that they want to promote you know like as you know of u2 and uh, all other groups as well but or many other groups but uh, that was unheard of in the early 60s so basically the only view that uh, the left had of pop music is uh, it was something that was promoted and uh, produced by uh, big capitalist corporations and they saw the music as relatively shallow. It was just talking about uh, things like love and wasn't addressing major issues. They saw uh, some of it as decadent, that it was uh, trying to get uh, young people to uh, to dance and to uh, take their minds off the uh, you know the, the problems of the day. And uh, also they uh, saw it as manufactured, that it wasn't uh, authentic music. It was something that was uh, the record labels and the producers just got these pop musicians that look good and then they just produced music for the mass market. So I think the left were very, um, uh, you know, uh, down on the pop music or rock music in uh, uh, general in the early uh, 60s. And I think in England, in some ways, if you think about it, the, the Beatles were certainly portraying themselves, and I think it's pretty much true, as working class. And so I think there was some elements in the left in the UK that kind of did sort of warm to the Beatles because of that factor, that they saw them as working class. And also because then the Beatles started to uh, uh, give press conferences and they were very irreverent. They always sort of, uh, you know, they're anti-authority. They started to then talk about issues like uh, civil rights that gave them a lot of coverage. So I think there was a, a shift in the press. But, of course, in America, in the left press, they, they weren't portrayed as uh, working class as much as portrayed as British. And so, therefore, I don't think that the, 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 uh, the left in America could warm to them as much as the left in the UK did. And uh, for the left in America, it's very noticeable that the music that they loved was folk music. They saw that as authentic. They saw that a lot of folk musicians were addressing issues of the day, and they felt that pop music was... Uh, 
just couldn't compare to uh, folk music. Earlier, you were telling us about how Mayor Daly leveraged the political machine to essentially counterbalance what the Beatles were doing. And when the Beatles played Chicago for the first time, it was halfway during their 1964 North American tour. And there was a lot of resistance leading up to that tour. I want to know how that first Chicago concert went after all of this had happened and they're finally playing. Yeah. Okay, so they played their first concert was in uh, September the 5th, 1964 in Chicago. And um, it was uh, promoted by a, um, a promoter in Chicago called Frank Freed, who's an absolutely fascinating figure because he is actually of the left. You know, we were just talking about uh, how the left responded. And he was a... Um, he was a steel worker in Chicago. He was laid off and uh, he was a member of the Trotskyist party, the Socialist Workers Party. He, he, he was a Trotskyist right till his death, you know, and it was sad to say he died when I was writing the book, so I never got a chance to speak to him. But uh, he did uh, uh, produce his memoirs, which I was uh, able to, to see. And uh, he basically remained uh, very much a leftist socialist right until the end. So he was uh, promoting the, the Beatles in Chicago. And, of course, he loved folk music. You know, he, he, he just like I was saying, the, the left in, in America just loved folk music. He knew very little about pop music. So he decided that uh, they should play in uh, an arena in the Chicago Stockyards. And the arena was called the International Amphitheater. And it held 13,000 people, one concert there. And uh, the, 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 the venue they played in, usually they used to have uh, stockyard events in there. You know, the, the, in other words, it was a place where you'd see cows walking around the, the floor rather than the Beatles or pop groups playing up on stage. And that was the venue that he chose to put the Beatles on. So it was a totally unsuitable venue. And then, um, like I say, it held 13,000 people. Now, they got 50,000 applicants for for uh, the uh, tickets. So he realised pretty quickly that it made a big, big mistake. And so he wanted the Beatles to play a second show and uh, because of their busy schedule, they, they wouldn't. So that gives you an indicator of uh, how little that people uh, in the music business and people like Frank Freed knew about pop music in the uh, early 60s. And then when the, uh, the concert took place, he hired a local uh, newspaper reporter, a, a person that wrote the, um, the column in the local newspaper, to act as an MC. So this is a middle-aged man who previously, for the previous few weeks, was writing uh, columns about how useless the Beatles were and about how stupid they were and how stupid the girls were that followed them. And there he was up on stage introducing them on September the 5th. So in many ways, it was such a strange uh, concert. You know, it was in a very strange place. It was uh, a place where they could have played to a lot more people and it was introduced by this uh, MC who really knew nothing about the Beatles and didn't even like them. So it was far from being a professional uh, concert. And in terms of how the concert go, just like all the others, you know, it was sent out obviously 13,000 people, 90% of them were girls. It was screaming all the way through their, um, their amplification and uh, sound system was very rudimentary, so you couldn't have heard them. Rudimentary lighting system, 
you know, it, in other words, it was it was a different world, really, from what we're used to today. If you go and see somebody like Paul McCartney today, it's in front of 50,000 people. They have uh, their own stage uh, equipment. They have their own lighting, huge sound equipment. They have big screens, don't they, up on the so you can see them. So it's, it's just a completely different world to see the Beatles in Chicago on September 5th, uh, 64. But the other thing to just say about it is they gave a press conference before the um, the concert. And this press conference, they arrived in Chicago and a lot of middle-aged white um, newspaper reporters were there to greet them. And they were very cynical about the Beatles. They didn't like them very much. The Beatles by that time were exhausted. They were tired. They'd been on the road a few weeks. And uh, the, the, the press conference did not go at all well. They were the the uh, the questions that they were asking were sort of silly. They were provocative, and the, the Beatles were responding with very few words. They were annoyed, so it, it gave an indicator really about how things are already changing. You know, if anybody ever watches that uh, press conference that the Beatles gave when they first landed in America on February the seventh of that year, sixty four, at uh, Kennedy Airport, they were so funny, they were so happy to be there, so joyful. And then you look at the coverage of the uh, Chicago press conference; it was just so so different. They'd already be, I think they'd already become by that stage pretty disillusioned about these big tours. You profile several people in your book who experienced Beatlemania at its height in Chicago, and you have a lot of great stories that come from a lot of great interviews, but I want to ask you about one in particular. Tell us about the black teenage girl who attended that first concert and what that experience was like for her. Yeah, her name is Cynthia Dagnall, and um, like I say, uh, I I wanted to get the black experience, and uh, I was so lucky to get her because, uh, first of all, she could remember a lot about watching the Ed Sullivan show, and like I was saying, she was very open about uh, how, you know, the family viewed the Beatles in so many different ways. And she was the one that told me about what it was like then to go into school that week and to have this sort of antagonism between the students about the Beatles. And then uh, she wanted to go and see them. But of course, the Beatles played in uh, the stockyards, which is in the southwest of the city. And that is a place at that time uh, especially, was uh, ex- extremely dangerous for black people. So one of the reasons people always ask about, you know, well, hold on a minute, if so many black people like the Beatles, how comes there wasn't many at their shows? And I think in some ways it was uh, socioeconomic. You know, a lot of black people couldn't afford the uh, the tickets or to go to the shows. But a lot of them, they were worried. They thought that uh, they were going to be surrounded by overwhelmingly white people and they'd get a hostile reception. And for somebody like Cynthia to go to the uh, International Amphitheatre, they were going to be wandering around neighbourhoods that uh, previously were uh, beating up black people. So, you know, she was obviously worried. So she went with a friend, the two of them went, two black girls, and uh, they got seats quite near the front, actually. You can actually see them on a couple of the, uh, the photos that I got of the uh, the shows. And uh, they were escorted there by their mother. And, uh, you know, like I said, the mother was worried about them, letting them go to the show. She escorted them to the show. They went in. They thought they were going to get a hostile reception. But lucky enough, they didn't. And they both said it was a wonderful experience they had. And they went back then the following year, in 1965, and they saw them at White Sox Park, 
And uh, she said that that experience wasn't as good because it was out in the open and it was a, they were much further from the stage. And so she never went in 66. But funnily enough, she, she remained very interested in music and she ended up becoming uh, a music journalist. And she wrote for the uh, Chicago Sun-Times and also for Rolling Stone magazine. And uh, also a wonderful thing is when Ringo Starr came to Chicago in uh, 1981, she uh, uh, met him. And uh, she uh, kindly enough gave me a lovely photo of her and uh, Ringo Starr. So there you are. So she went from watching them on the Ed Sullivan show to uh, becoming a journalist and writing about them and meeting Ringo Starr. So when Cynthia saw the Beatles the first time in 1964 and again in 1965, so much had absolutely changed. When they left that first tour, there seemed to be this collective sigh of relief and Media outlets that had supported them before, such as black radio, weren't as supportive. Uh, Americans' attitudes toward the Beatles had changed. The Beatles' attitude towards America had changed. And by the time they toured again in 65, yes, the concert is more professional and organized, but a lot of the culture had changed. And I want to understand what exactly had changed in that year. Yeah, the first thing you say about the 64 tour, I mean, it was, it, it was in 24 cities they played. The Beatles. I mean, that's just unbelievable. 24 cities. And that was spread over 33 days. And they were flying on a plane and it wasn't very organized. They didn't start on the West Coast and then worked east. It was basically a haphazard route that they were flying across America. So they flew thousands upon thousands of miles. And again, uh, everywhere they went, they were, uh, you know, met by huge crowds. Everybody wanted a piece of them. You know, the media wanted them, the promoters wanted them. It would have been just an overwhelming experience. And when they came back to the UK after that tour, they all gave interviews to the media and they said, never again. We're never going to do a tour like that again. It's just so, you know, overwhelming and so tired. But when they came back in 1965, they played in 10 cities and it was spread over only 17 days. So they're only in America for two and a half weeks. And uh, for part of that uh, tour, they also had a rest in California. So it was a much more civilized uh, length of tour uh, compared to the one in uh, 64. Now, uh, in terms of where they played, like I say, they played in a lot of arenas in that uh, year in 65, which again gives you an indicator about where the music industry was heading towards these bigger arenas, bigger st stages, you know, places where they could play. But in terms of the audience, the audience was also beginning to change. I think this is more so in 66, actually. You can see a change, 64, 65, 66. But they're already, the, the audience was already beginning to adopt British uh, fashions. So you started to see uh, uh, boys having a bit longer hair. You started to see the girls starting to wear the straight hair that the Beatles girlfriends had. You're also uh, seeing that the audience is becoming now a little bit more uh, gender neutral. There, there was, uh, again, overwhelmingly girls, but there were certainly more boys in 65 and, again, more boys again in uh, 66. So I think it was beginning to reflect the changes that were coming to America. The audience was becoming more, uh, uh, more boys beginning to like the Beatles. Uh, the Beatles were uh, also becoming a bit more accustomed to touring. And, again, this then... By 1966, I think it you know, had become even more uh, prevalent about these cultural changes that were taking place. And what about the media's attitudes towards them, the ones who had previously supported the Beatles but seemed to kind of back away? 
Yeah, in in sixty uh, four, there was only one uh, major top forty radio station in uh, Chicago, and that was WLS. Now in sixty five, there was a rival. So this was again a uh, you know a sort of like foretelling of what was to come that you had these number of different. So there was now two. The other one was called WCFL, which was actually a labor stands for Confederation uh, the uh, Chicago Confederation of Labor. So it was actually their radio station, and them two became the major radio stations in uh, America, in Chicago, I should say, not America, and. Uh, so uh, when they emceed the show in 65, it was actually WLS that was now the MCs, which again gives you an idea of the uh, professionalism. But in terms of the media, yeah, I think uh, the media was always split about the Beatles. There was uh, some parts of the media was very antagonistic. The Tribune uh, remained so all the way, while other parts of the media sort of were a little bit more accepting of them. And uh, I think that, that pretty much remained the way in the... Uh, 65. So as the 60s are progressing, the Beatles have an influence on the local Chicago music scene and also the countercultural scene as well. Looking back, the Beatles evolved and we see them as countercultural icons, but Chicago wasn't a major countercultural scene as places like San Francisco, but there was something. Tell us about that local music scene and the countercultural scene in Chicago during the late 60s. Yeah, one of the things that I found so remarkable was about the uh, the influence that the Beatles had on uh, the local music scene. And I think, uh, you know, in Chicago, certainly, but I think America in general, but Chicago just seemed to have a well of uh, new groups that just emerged after the Beatles. And I think the reason for that is that when uh, a lot of young people saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show in 64, that they uh, they thought, wow, that, that looks so fun and it looks so easy. Because the Beatles were just kind of like smiling to each other. There was no dance routines or they didn't seem to be doing anything special. It was just walking around the stage. And it just seemed easy and it seemed fun. And it seemed like just a group of uh, friends up on that stage. So therefore, literally that week, thousands of people in the Chicago area, young people, went out and bought uh, instruments for the first time to play guitar or drums or whatever. And some of them formed groups and some of them played at parties or at church halls, and some of the lucky ones got uh, record uh, contracts, and some of them got hit records. And uh, Chicago had an amazing number of uh, groups in the 60s. The only again, I couldn't really think of an analogy to this, but the only way I could think of that is was when the iPhone came out, and that everybody started to rush out and buy the iPhone and all the you know, the, the paraphernalia that goes with an iPhone. And that's the only way I could imagine the sort of uh, the, the reaction to the Beatles in terms of people buying instruments. You know, it's just amazing, really. And then a lot of these groups um, became uh, national hits like the Buckinghams, the uh, uh, Crying Shames, New Colony Six. These are all pretty much uh, very well known in Chicago. Some people came to Chicago and started to make a career there. One of them was Ted Nugent. Who was playing in Chicago for two years? The the uh, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with uh, Ted Nugent, and uh, so there was a, a really amazing music scene, and there was a um, a club because there wasn't many places for them to play, so people started to to open clubs. And one of the first to open was in a suburb of Chicago called Arlington Heights, which was kind of like a um, a pretty sedate 
people usually say sleepy suburb of Chicago. And uh, uh, this man called Paul Sampson was running a, uh, a record store there. And uh, people started to come in, young people to his store, saying that I saw a group playing at a party and, you know, we'd love to play somewhere else, but there's no where for them to play. So he started to look around for a place, to, his own cavern. He specifically wanted the place that was like the cavern in Liverpool. And so he eventually found a church basement that he turned into, a disused church basement that he turned into a club, and he called it the cellar. So the cavern, the cellar. And the cellar became this major music venue in the Chicago area. Everybody played there. All the local bands played there. And, of course, also international national bands played there, including the Birds, uh, the Who, uh, Cream, uh, the Yardbirds, Sly and the Family Stone. They all played at this small club in uh, Arlington Heights. And so it was quite a phenomenon, really. And then the other thing I should have said also is that... Uh, uh, you know, a byproduct, I think, of the, the Beatles phenomena is that it wasn't just boys that started to form groups because of the Beatles. It was also girls. And I think this is the first time, you know, it's hard pressed to think about many all girl uh, groups playing their own instruments before the Beatles. Very, very few. But after the Beatles, there was a number of them all over the Chicago area. You know, names like the uh, the same, the shape. Uh, the Chips, the Daughters of Eve, there was a number of them that emerged. And I think the reason why that is, is because when girls looked at the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, they could see themselves on that stage, that the Beatles had the long hair. They're pretty scrawny, let's be honest. They're not exactly big macho men like, uh, you know, some of the uh, uh, beefcakes that were around in the, uh, the 50s. And uh, they were sort of androgynous and they were playing uh, music that was influenced by the uh, girl group sound, the harmonies. And so I think a lot of girls actually thought, you know, that's me on stage. And so therefore they formed all girl groups as well. So anyway, so that was the phenomena in the terms of the music scene in Chicago, that hundreds of groups, many of them are all, all girl instrumental groups. And then these clubs started to appear to, uh, to stage these uh, shows. Your book is rich with a lot of great stories and information and much more that we can cover here and people need to read the book. So the last thing I want to ask you about are the photos in your book, which include cartoons, advertisements, fanzines, concert bills. How did you come across these? Yeah, I mean, uh, the counterculture really was a, uh, a West Coast phenomena, maybe partly in the East Coast, not so much in the, uh, the Southern states or the Midwest. Uh, but there was a countercultural scene in Chicago and uh, it was built around a newspaper called The Seed. And uh, as the Beatles became so associated with the counterculture, The Seed was a very pro-Beatle newspaper in Chicago. It reported on the counterculture. It was very antagonistic to uh, Mayor Daly, but it was also very supportive of the Beatles. The, uh, they had the Beatles on the cover of their newspaper. They had interviews with them. So that was the, the centerpiece, if you want to say, of the, uh, the counterculture in Chicago, the seed. And then the place was the Old Town neighborhood. That was where there was a lot of shops that started to appear that were uh, selling countercultural clothing and uh, other material that was related to the uh, counterculture. And then there was a club that opened up called the Kinetic Playground. 
And uh, it's a nice comparison with the cellar that I just mentioned earlier. That was kind of like the first clubs appeared, and that would have been a team club, not selling alcohol. People were there to watch the groups. And then the Connectic Playground was a place that where the counterculture gathered. People would be sitting on the uh, the floors. They would be, uh, there'd be the smell of pot in the air. And so that was very much a counterculture uh, venue so there was a countercultural scene in chicago but it was very small and uh, the city administrators certainly didn't like it and so the connected playground was uh, raided on a number of occasions and shut down the seed was also raided and uh, by for obscenity by uh, the police and uh, the beatles were caught up in this and they were caught up in this in a couple of ways one is uh, when uh, john and yoko bought out their album, uh, The Two Virgins. If you remember, the, the cover was a picture of them naked. And the first place where there was a, uh, a, a court case, a, an, an arrest over that cover, was in Chicago, when somebody put a picture of the cover in their uh, shop and the they, some woman saw it, reported it to the police, and the owners of the shop were arrested and they were charged with uh, obscenity. So it gives you an idea of uh, the... Um, the, the reaction to the counterculture. And then the other way that uh, the Beatles were caught up in it is WLS was a relatively conservative radio station. And believe it or not, three Beatles songs were banned by WLS. and uh, Or I should say two Beatles and one John and Yoko. But the three were uh, A Day in the Life, which was also uh, banned in, by the BBC for drug references and or what they perceived as drug references. And then the ballad of John and Yoko was banned because they the mentioned the word Christ. And then thirdly, the, the John and Yoko song, um, uh, Cold Turkey, was also banned because of drug references. So it gives you an idea that there was a countercultural scene in Chicago, but uh, the city was very antagonistic. I had some uh, people I interviewed from the sea told me that it was dangerous to walk the streets with long hair in Chicago in the late 60s. It was that, uh, you know, it was that uh, difficult to be a, uh, a follower of the counterculture. And the Beatles got caught up in it when they were associated with it. So the book is incredibly rich with a lot of great stories and information and much more than we can cover here. So I, I encourage everyone to read the book. But the last thing I want to ask you about are the photos in your book, which include cartoons, advertisements, fanzines, and concert bills. How did you come across these? Yeah, I, I knew from the beginning I wanted to put a lot of uh, illustrations and photos in the book, but I didn't want it to be. You find in a lot of books where they're just kind of put together in a you know the middle of the book or something, just some pictures of them. So I didn't want to do sort of like just generic pictures of the Beatles that were just there for decoration. I wanted to integrate them into the book and to have them help drive the narrative. So in other words, you'd be reading the book and you see the picture and that would illustrate something that was in the narrative. So I, some of the pictures uh, I did myself. I went to Liverpool and took a lot of pictures of their homes and that kind of does illustrate about their backgrounds. I then wanted to uh, find uh, pictures of the concerts in Chicago and the best place for that is the, uh, the Chicago uh, History Museum and they have a great collection actually from, from local newspapers that they collected over the years of the, the Beatles in Chicago. And then also uh, people I interviewed. I interviewed a lot of the groups in Chicago and other people. They gave me some photos, which were very good. But then I looked through the uh, newspapers, especially the countercultural newspapers, and I came across some lovely adverts and some lovely articles 
about the Beatles that I knew just had to be included in them as well. So I came across from a variety of places. But of course, uh, when I was doing all this, this was the summer of 2020. And that was right when the lockdown was on, you know, the, the, the pandemic. And so, of course, it was very difficult to uh, every single thing you have to put in the book. You have to find out who's got the copyright and then get permission to uh, to put it into the book. And so it was difficult to find out who had copyright, first of all. And then when you did find that out, you then had to try and get uh, track down the person to uh, get their permission uh, during a lockdown when you couldn't physically go out and see people or physically go out and take photocopies of things. It was very, very difficult, I must say. So that that was one of the most trying parts of uh, doing the book, actually, was uh, putting all the illustrations in there. But I do think that they do help to drive the narrative. And I hope most of them that people haven't seen before. I've, I've not used anything that has been in any other book. John, this has been a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Bradley. It was a pleasure to speak to you and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And if I could just say, you know, so much ink has been spilt on the Beatles over the last several decades that I find it incredibly impressive when when a, a talented writer is able to find a unique angle and perspective on such a hugely covered and influential band and you accomplished that rather admirably and this is an incredible book and you should be proud well thank you very much i appreciate that bradley my name is bradley morgan and you've been listening to new books and music with my guest today john lyons his book is joy and fear the beatles chicago in the 1960s and is published by pure muted press